Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 24 through 34 and considering the fear of God. John, chapter 9, verses 24 through 34 and considering the fear of God. Give attention to God's holy word. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for the grace of adoption that by the work of the Son and in your great mercy to us, you have not only forgiven us of our sins and declared us righteous in your sight, but you have adopted us into your family as your own sons and daughters. And we thank you, O Lord, that as a provident and generous Father, you feed us with full meals of your word twice on the Lord's day. We thank and praise you for this and ask you now that you would, by your Spirit, give us the capacity and the energy and the attention to digest this meal that you have prepared for us. And we ask you to do all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In all kinds of physical combat, there's really one basic technique that you learn. Whether it's boxing, judo, kung fu, any type of physical combat... There's really a basic thing that you have to learn. You learn how to block and counterattack. And essentially everything else that comes out of that are different ways of receiving an attack, blocking it, and turning it around and attacking your opponent. You see this in fencing and in all these different kinds of physical combat sports. Well, just like in physical combat... Our walk with Christ, our life in this world, is a combat. We are engaged in a warfare. And the warfare that we're engaged with requires us to fight back sometimes. It requires us to be able to receive an attack, to block or reverse it, and counterattack against those who are coming at us. Now, the only way to do this effectively, though is to be without fear. You know, as, as I uh, love to remind you, I used to play football. 
And one of the things that the football coaches will teach you when you're on the football field is that if you want to avoid injury, you have to deliver the blow. You have to give the hit to the other guy. If you stay back on your heels and let them hit you, that's how you get injured. So to avoid the injury, you have to attack them and deliver the hit to them. One of the other things you find playing football is every young boy who starts playing football is always a little bit scared. The fear goes away once they get their clock cleaned the first time. Once I got my clock cleaned the first time, I realized this is really not that bad, and I don't have to be afraid, and now I can actually deliver the blow. So in order to be an effective athlete, to be an effective fighter, you have to engage in the fight without fear. Well, what we see in this passage is the counterpart to what we saw last week. If you remember last week in John chapter 9, we noticed the blind man's parents are called into this church court, and they, because they have the fear of man, they were unable to answer honestly the court of the church. The fear of man led them into sinning and ultimately denying Christ. What we're going to find in this passage, however, is that the blind man himself has the fear of God in his heart. And because he does not, because he fears God, he fears nothing else. Because he has the fear of God, he's not afraid of these men. He's not afraid of the church court. And because he's not afraid, he's able to fight back effectively. He is able to fight back with the spirit of power and of a sound mind. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to notice three things. There's a three-part movement to this interview with the man. There's the initial attack, then there's a reverse, and a counterattack. In verses 22 and 25 is the initial attack. In verses 26 through 29 is the reversal. And then in verses 30 through 34 is the counterattack. So attack, reversal, counterattack. Attack, reversal, and counterattack. And so as we begin looking at this passage, we start in verse 24, and we notice the initial attack. Notice what the, uh, the men say to him. But before we get into that, though, we need a little bit more context. As I've mentioned last week when we were in this chapter, it bears repeating again. This is in the midst of a church court. The, the men that are interviewing this man are officers in the local synagogue. We know that because at the end of verse 22, we find why the parents are scared. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. We learn again at the end of this passage in verse 34 that the blind man himself is going to be cast out. Now this word in Greek, as we mentioned last time, is the first time John uses this word. It's a word that means to be excommunicated, and this shows us the development of John's gospel. Up to this point, the Jews are willing to debate with Christ. At the beginning of the gospel, the Jews are actually coming to Christ saying, we know that you're a man from God, teach us, Nicodemus chapter 3. As the story goes on, the Jews are having discussions with Christ, they're engaged in lengthy debates with Christ, John 5, 6, and seven. But by the time you get to John chapter 8, the Jews have heard enough 
And at the end of John chapter 8, they're ready to stone Jesus because he has made himself equal with God. They don't want to hear it anymore. Now in John chapter 9, we see that they're not only done listening to Jesus, they don't want to hear from his disciples either. And they're ready to excommunicate all of those who confess Christ. Ultimately, where this is going to lead is not only the excommunication of the blind man, not only the excommunication of Christ himself, but the very execution of Christ. This is one of the themes that happens in John's Gospel. There's a developing animosity towards the Lord Jesus that culminates in his execution on the cross. And it begins here with this passage dealing with his disciples. So, these men call the man in again. They call in the man who was blind. And they say to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, notice first off what these men are doing. As I've mentioned, they're officers in a local synagogue. They have authority to exercise church power. They have authority within the local church. But notice how they abuse their authority. The man comes in the room. It's almost as if he comes through the doors. Right when he's in front of them, they start attacking him. Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. You know, sometimes in presbytery debates, they'll open the floor for questions. Somebody has a motion, and then they open the floor. Does anybody have questions for the session or for this man who's presenting a motion? And you've probably seen people do this sometimes in Bible studies. They're asking a question, but the question is actually a way of them saying something. Like, wouldn't you agree that uh, this view that I'm going to put forward is correct? Don't you agree that I'm right on this? It's not really a question. You're just making a statement. Well, that's what these men do here. They don't have any more questions for him. They come out and attack him immediately. Notice, secondarily, not only are they attacking him, but they're abusing the power of the church. You see, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches us church power is ministerial and declarative. What does that mean? Ministerial and declarative. Church power being ministerial means that as officers in the church, we are under the authority of Christ. We are under the authority of Christ's will revealed in the scriptures. And so all that church officers are empowered to do is to minister to the people what the word of God says and declare what the word of God says. That's it. Minister's power is only to declare what the scriptures already say. Now, this is different from the power of a family or the power of the state. In a family, the father can legislate. What does that mean? No ball in the house. No um, playing around in the fire pit. No cookies after 7 p.m. The father can legislate within his home for the good order of the family. In the state, likewise, magistrates have the power to create laws for the people that are under them. They have authority to do that. They can compel through the power that's been given to them. Not so in the church. The church's authority is only to declare what God has already said in his word. So notice, 
they attack him, and they're abusing church authority by using church authority to maintain error. Look at what they're accusing Jesus of. Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. Remember who they're talking about. They're talking about Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the one whom all of the prophets, from Moses to Zechariah, prophesied would come. From Samuel all the way up, every single one of the Old Testament books is prophesying the arrival of this man. And in their authority in the church, they are maintaining error. We know this man is a sinner. So we have an abuse of church power. This is very important to keep in mind for you as sheep within the Lord's pasture. You know, it's, it's very interesting. It's always struck me as very interesting. In the New Testament, when Paul the Apostle is writing to church officers, Timothy and Titus, he writes to them and gives them instructions publicly. The same instructions he gives to Timothy and Titus for how to run the church are the same instructions that all of you have access to. What does this mean? This means that authority in the church is an open forum. It's an, it's an open book. All of you have access to the book, just like the officers do. There's no secret knowledge that we have, and so therefore there's no, uh, there should be no opportunity for church officers to abuse authority by maintaining an error, just like these synagogue officers are doing. Now, what does that mean for you? You need to be able to recognize this kind of stuff. Because even though myself and the elders and the deacons in this church have been given authority, we exercise the power that God has given to us, we are accountable to the Scriptures. We're not accountable to one another. We're accountable to the truth of God's Word. You have access to God's Word. You need to know God's Word. And if we are out of line, you need to be able to recognize it and with manly courage correct us and help us get back on the right track. Unlike these men who are maintaining an error and they're attacking this man. Well, they attack this man, but it doesn't work. Look at how he responds in verse 25. They come out and they attack him. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is the first evidence that we have that this man has the fear of God in him. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is writing to a church officer someone who has been given authority in the church and who will have to exercise that authority. And he encourages him by comparing the spirit of fear with the spirit of courage. The spirit of the fear of man, he compares that with the spirit of the fear of God. 2 Timothy 1.7 2 Timothy 1.7, he tells Timothy, this young pastor, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. 
Notice what Paul is doing in this passage. He's saying there's the spirit of fear. God hasn't given us that spirit. He's given us a different spirit. He's given us the spirit of courage, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. But he doesn't make a direct comparison. He compares the spirit of fear with the fruits of the fear of God. He compares it with what the fear of God actually produces in us. If we have the fear of God and we have godly courage, these things will be evident. Power, love, and a sound mind. Now let's go back to John chapter 9. Notice, the man who was blind has great power. Think about it if you were in this situation. This is your hometown. You have been in this city your entire life. The, the Jews, the officers of this synagogue, you probably grew up with them. They were probably at your circumcision. They probably visited your home when relatives died. This man knows these men, but not only so, they use all of the church authority to overwhelm him. We, the officers of the church, know that this man is a sinner. Agree with us. Do it now. Agree with us. And this man stands his ground and is not moved at all. You know, there are certain things, uh, certain buildings the Romans have built. And over many centuries, sometimes almost 2,000 years, the structures that these Romans have built are still standing and still being used. Some of the aqueducts, the roads, the great monuments that they built. When you look at those monuments, you recognize there is a lot of power in that monument. Not because it can move, not because it can do amazing things, but because it has staying power. All the forces of nature pushing against it. All the forces of, of wind and rain and floods pushing against that structure, and it's still standing. Hasn't moved an inch. Likewise, this man doesn't move an inch when he's attacked by the forces of the church. He stands his ground, but what I want you to notice also here, not only that he has power, I want you to know where his power comes from. His power comes from a personal experience of God's saving grace. Look at what he says to them. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know. Though I was blind, now I see. He testifies to his own experience of the power of Christ and saying, I have felt his power in my own life. You cannot convince me otherwise. There is nothing you can do to me that will make me deny this truth. I was blind, but now I see. Brothers and sisters, that is the source of power in the face of wickedness. That is the source of courage in the face of the devil's onslaughts. Your own experience of the power of Christ in saving you. And I trust that you are able to say along with this blind man, there was a time when I was blind. There was a time when I loved sin, death, and hell. But now I see. My heart has been transformed. God has opened my eyes to see his truth. There is nothing you can do to convince me otherwise. There's a, there's a great example of this from church history. I'm sure you know the story of Martin Luther. He was in a very similar situation, wasn't he? 
Martin Luther was writing about the grace of God in Christ and that through faith alone sinners are declared righteous, all of the the bishops and cardinals of the Roman church, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor himself, who at the time was the largest landowner in Europe. He owned most of Europe and three-fourths of North and South America at the time. He's there in front of Charles V, and he, they put his books on the table, and they tell Martin Luther, recant all of these books. We know that this man is a sinner. Give God the glory. Martin Luther says, unless I'm convinced, by Scripture and plain reason, I cannot recant. I can do no other. God, help me. And he stood there in front of all the powers of the church, just like this man. The reason Martin Luther was able to do that is because Martin Luther had discovered the power of God in the gospel. He had experienced God's saving grace. You also have experienced God's saving grace. If you have been convicted of your sins and built up in the comfort of Christ. Ultimately, that is the experience that God gives to his people by the work of the Spirit. He convinces us of our sins, he converts us to Christ, and then he builds us up in the comfort of the Lord Jesus. Paul uses this same kind of logic in Philippians chapter 2. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 2. He appeals to the church in Philippi based upon their personal experience of the power of God in the gospel. Look at what he says. Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, what he's saying to the church is if you have experienced the consolation of Christ, if you've experienced the loving tender embrace of the Redeemer, comforting you in light of your sins, if you've ever known the fellowship of the Spirit, His presence upon your heart, compelling you as the great paraclete to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've experienced this, then live in this way. And he goes on to talk about how we should live as Christians. What I want you to notice, though, is that Paul is appealing to their personal experience. He's he's appealing to them and saying, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now therefore do this. Likewise, the blind man in John chapter 9 stands before the church officers and says, I once was blind, but now I see. So he weathers the first attack. Now he reverses it. John 9 verse 26. They they come at him, and then he reverses and is going to counterattack. But notice the reversal that he gives to them. Verse 26, they they said to him again, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Notice first off, the officers of the church, they, they just don't want to hear what this man has to say. So instead of simply accepting what he has to say, they ask more questions. They ask more irrelevant questions. Well, tell us exactly how this happened. What, what exactly did he do? Notice how this man reverses things on them. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. 
Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Now, there might be, a, there's, a, there's a couple ways to interpret what he says here. First, it could be sincere. He could honestly be saying to them, yes, I will tell you more of it if you want to become one of his disciples. I would love for you guys to repent and become a follower of Christ. That could be what he's doing. What I think is more likely, and, and most of the commentators go in this direction, he's being ironic with them. He, he recognizes that they're not honest uh, they're not good faith, oper- they're not operating in good faith. They don't want to hear what Christ has to say, and so he's being sarcastic to draw them out. He says, do you want to become a disciple? That's the only reason I'm going, go- I'm going to go over this again with you. If you want to become a disciple, we'll keep talking about it. But if you don't want to be a disciple, then you guys are, are trying to deceive me or trap me. He reverses things on them. This is a very important principle that the man is operating with here. Remember what Christ says about casting your pearls before swine. He says, don't do it, lest they trample you and consume you. There does come a point at which certain people in our lives can't be taught anymore. There comes a point at which individuals are so opposed to the truth of the gospel, their questions are dishonest, and they don't need to be uh, dealt with anymore at this level. How do you discern this? Well, Paul tells Titus, uh, directing a church officer, after the second and third admonition, reject a divisive person. Now, that's a principle for church office and how officers are to run the church. If you're trying to teach somebody and show them the way, and after two or three admonitions, they still refuse to follow the Lord's ways, They need to be rejected. They need to be excommunicated. However, there is a practical piece of wisdom for us in our daily lives. Let's say you have a coworker. Let's say you have a family member. Let's say you have somebody in your life that you're trying to share the gospel with. And you've tried several times. Every time, though, they put up resistance. They make excuses. They they give you uh, questions that are irrelevant. Well, if Jesus really is the Messiah, why do babies die in infancy? Questions like that that come from a place of dishonesty. Sometimes with people like that, you just have to say, I can't talk about this with you anymore. I've tried to share it with you. I've tried to give you the gospel, but I'm not going to waste my time sharing these things with you. That's what this man does here. He doesn't take the bait. He reverses it on them and says, do you also... Want to become his disciples? Now, we need to be careful at this point. We need a lot of wisdom and discernment to do this well. I'm not saying don't share the gospel. And I'm not saying that when you meet some resistance, you should stop sharing the gospel. I'm saying that after multiple times and multiple attempts over a period of time, if somebody keeps rejecting it, then you should not waste your time anymore with them. Because ultimately, God is the one who saves, not you. God is the one who will make the seed bear fruit, not you. We know that within this chapter, this is the case. Remember how many times these Pharisees have heard the story. Chapter uh, 15, they called him in, he testifies once. Uh, Verse 15, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 15. They call him in, And he testifies, I washed, 
and now I see. They called the parents in. And the parents testified, he was born blind. They called this man in again, verse 25. I was blind and now I see. Three times the Pharisees have been told, this is the blind man. Or the one who was blind. And they've rejected it three times. So this man says, do you also want to be his disciples? He reverses it and notice how they respond in verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. Now, the man asked the question, do you want to become his disciples? He pulls a reversal on them, and they give themselves enough rope. They, they, they lay their cards on the table, so to speak. You see what they say? We are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow... We do not know where he is from. In producing this reversal, he gets them to admit where they're coming from. One, they adhere to Moses, so they say. Remember what I said at the beginning of this, uh, uh, this section within the synagogue. You remember in verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. One of the things we had to keep in mind is that the Pharisees, as they taught about the Sabbath, they taught their own understanding of the Sabbath. They, as it says in the book of Isaiah, obeyed God according to the doctrines of men. Their heart was far from God. They did not follow God's true commandments. They followed the teachings and the interpretations of men. Well, likewise here, the same thing is going on. We follow Moses, but it's not the Moses of the Scriptures that they follow. They follow the Moses of the rabbis. They follow the Moses of the Pharisees. Because as Christ has already said in John chapter 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. There's one very important thing to bring out here for contemporary issues. One, uh, uh, this, this one very important thing. This is still the mindset of the Jews. To this day, those who adhere to what we call Judaism still have this mindset. They say that they follow Moses. But what they mean by following Moses is they follow the teachings of the rabbis. If they truly followed Moses, they would follow Christ. Because Moses wrote about Christ. John chapter 5. And so when the Jews say this, we follow the Torah. They don't really follow the Torah. They follow the teachings of the rabbis. I knew a man one time who was running for office in Georgia, and he was at an open house for his campaign, and there was a Jewish rabbi there. And this guy's trying to build rapport. He's, he's running for civil office. And so he says, I'm a Christian, and, and you're a Jew, and so we both uh, follow the Old Testament, don't we? we? We both want the Old Testament to be upheld in the civil society. This rabbi got furious and said to him, we do not follow the Old Testament, we follow the rabbis. Shocked, my friend. It was shocking to him. But this is how the Jews operate today. They don't follow the Old Testament. They don't follow Moses. Because if they did, they would be followers of Christ. Well, they, the, the man successfully reverses their attack, and now he goes in for the counterattack. And I want you to see, in the counterattack, he had power... 
at the beginning of this episode, now he shows that he has a sound mind. Notice how he reasons with them. The man answered and said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. The man begins with this, and now notice how he goes into reasoning with them and proving that Jesus really is the Christ. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. The way that this man begins to reason with them is not by quoting Scripture directly, but by summarizing the teachings of Scripture. In, in this one verse, verse 31, the man has summarized pretty much the entire Old Testament. And he, he begins by talking about being a sinner. If you are a sinner, God does not hear your prayers. There's many places in Proverbs that talk about this. There's many places in the prophets as well. It says that the, even the plowing and the sowing of the wicked is an abomination. It says in other places in the book of Proverbs, wisdom cries out from the streets, and those who refuse to listen to wisdom, wisdom will refuse you when you cry out to her. There's other places that talk about the prayer of the wicked is an abomination. He not only says that God does not hear sinners, but then he contrasts this with the righteous. And notice the two aspects of being righteous, the same two aspects from Romans chapter 12 this morning, a worshiper of God and one who does his will. That's what it means to be righteous. So there are sinners and there are those who worship God and do his will. And this man summarizes the entire Old Testament in one premise, and we know that the Old Testament teaches if someone worships God and does his will, he hears him. This is an important illustration of a principle that our confession of faith talks about when they talk about good and necessary consequence. The scriptures are given to us explicitly to teach what God's will is. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are to have no other gods before me. You are to remember the Sabbath day. Do not murder. Do not lie. Do not covet. All these explicit statements in the scriptures. But the truth that comes from scripture by a good and necessary consequence, a summary statement like this is just as true as the explicit statements of scripture. So this man can say to them, we know what the Old Testament teaches. Here it is in a summary statement. That's just as true as the entire Old Testament. Now he goes on and works from this. Verse 32, since the world began, it, has it ever been heard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was blind? Notice the nature of his argument. He starts out by saying, if one is a servant of God, God will hear him. Now, this man has opened my eyes, something that's never happened before in all of history, now, verse 33, he comes to this conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So what he's doing is he's challenging the Pharisees to say, you have to square this circle. You have to make this make sense. He opened the eyes of a man who was born blind. Yet you say he is a sinner who does not come from God. Either he opened my eyes or he's not a sinner and he is truly the Messiah. You figure it out. You're the ones who are denying this, 
And yet you can't reconcile it with the truth that's standing in front of your own eyes. One final thing to note about this reversal, or this uh, counterattack. Those who deny Christ and deny the truth of His Word begin to lose any kind of coherent system of knowledge. If you deny truth, your system of, if you deny Christ, your system of knowledge will begin to fall apart. It becomes incoherent. You cannot reconcile all of the things that you experience. We see this going on in the West today, don't we? For decades and centuries, Western man has been told, you are nothing but a showered and shaven ape. That's what you are. You're an ape that showers and shaves. And yet, mankind's mental and spiritual state is getting worse and worse and worse. It's as if what the the blind man is saying here, if man really is not in the image of God, then why is he desperate for the grace of God? Why is it that men without the grace of God go from bad to worse to abominations? Same thing that this man is saying to them. He shows that he has a sound mind. He reasons with them and proves that Jesus is the Christ. Now we know it's supposed to be taken this way because notice what they do. Verse 34, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Remember earlier on what John said. If anybody confessed he was Christ, he would be cast out. This man is cast out, which means he confessed that Jesus is the Christ. But he does it in this way of reasoning from the Scriptures and reasoning from his own experience. Notice finally in verse 34, when it comes to the conclusion, their sin finally comes out. Their pride finally comes out. Look at what they say. You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? As if to say, we weren't born in sin, and we are the one that should teach you. Now, we just read in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, did Adam only, or did all mankind fall in Adam's transgression? All of mankind fell in Adam's transgression. Jew, Gentile, church officer, church member, civil magistrate, citizen of the country, all of us are born in sins, and therefore all of us should be able to be taught by the truth of Christ. But the pride of these men comes out, and they cast him out of the church. Brothers and sisters, you need to know how to fight. You need to know how to absorb an attack, how to reverse it, and how to counterattack. Now, we know that this man's attack is successful, not because he has prosperity, not because he makes friends and influences people, not because he's ordained to church office. We know that his attack was successful because he's excommunicated. Peter says in his first letter, if you suffer persecution for the name of Christ, rejoice, because the spirit of grace and of glory is resting upon you. You see, the victory of this man is that he's able to maintain a clear conscience and give a full testimony to Christ when he was called upon. That is the victory in the warfare that we're engaged in. You also are engaged in that warfare right now. 
And it's going to get more intense in this country. It's going to get more intense in our churches because this is the way of all things. If the Jewish synagogue that was established by the hand of God himself, speaking through Moses, can degrade so much that they excommunicate and execute Christ, it can also happen in our churches today. It can also happen in our midst today. But the way that we gain the victory is by experience of God's grace, personal experience of his saving power. And from that personal experience, God implants his own fear in our hearts. And when we fear God, we will bear the fruits of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And at the end of the day, when the battle is over and the bell rings, God will reward his servants in the new heavens and the new earth. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this example. We give you thanks for this man, how he showed us the courage that comes from fearing you. We pray that you would put your fear in us, that we might truly be those that worship you and do your will. And we pray that you would allow us to taste and to see more and more that the Lord is good in delivering us from our sins. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.